Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you a long ago and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the body of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the, the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's sufferings and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preach in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly glad to watch, are eagerly watching these things happen. All right. <clears throat> Great job, Nathaniel. All the provinces and everything, that was incredible. Did a great job reading that. 
All right, well, you guys, if you've been tracking with us, you should have already been studying this passage. How many of you have been able to get, go through that passage for the week? Okay, great. You understand it? You get it? Someone, one of you want to come up here and preach this? <laughs> I know, it can be kind of complicated, and especially with Peter, he can have lots of long sentences and uh, twists and turns and all of that, so sometimes it can be a little bit difficult, but... Uh, it's also something very understandable. Now today, I'm going to take you through, uh, a lot of what I'm going to do is, actually has to do with the context here. And hopefully, this first message will be uh, foundational for you to understand not just this passage, but also the rest of the book as well. So hopefully it's something that's helpful for you. I'm not going to address everything possible in there, but, uh, but I'm going to do the best I can to, uh, to walk you through this passage. Hopefully uh, there are some things that you'll see that you hadn't seen before, uh, but that's what we're going to do, all right? All right, so context. Uh, it's no secret that Roman emperors were powerful, uh, in their day, and they really kind of had to be powerful too because they had a very difficult job. They led a huge Roman empire that was very complicated to govern. Uh, it spanned thousands of miles and it contained countless uh, conquered ethnic groups that, uh, that were oftentimes uh, ended up being kind of a powder keg of a thing to be, able to, uh, to be able to govern. And so peace then was imposed with an iron fist. And sometimes that took the form of what we might call social engineering. Now, in general, the Roman Empire was what we call a pluralistic society, uh, which means that they didn't have a big problem with non-Roman religions as long as they didn't cause trouble and as long as they didn't... Uh, evangelize, let's just say. Uh, but even the smallest hint of trouble would be met with a powerful uh, show of force. And sometimes that was through the violence of the military, and sometimes it was actually squelched through what they call forced migration. In other words, they would take people from one place and force them to go to another place. Now one example of this was Emperor Claudius. Claudius reigned from 41 to 54 AD, which is just a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And toward the end of his reign, there are records of some Christians in the city of Rome, which was the capital city of the Roman Empire, of course, in the city of Rome evangelizing and actually creating quite a stir. And so Emperor Claudius had them expelled from Rome. Now, this wasn't the only time that Christians would be expelled from Rome, but this was one of those times. And in fact, if you look in the book of Acts, many say that Priscilla and Aquila were, uh, were some of the Christians who were expelled from Rome and relocated to other places in the empire. Now, Claudius was a smart guy, and he knew that he could kill two birds with one stone, because at that time, there was also some unrest happening up in the province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, there, and, and he felt like he needed some shoring up, and so the cities up in that area could use some uh, Romanizing. So they wanted to send some Roman citizens up there and just kind of shore up that area of the empire. And so historians tell us that Claudius actually took those Christians who were creating such an uproar in Rome, and he relocated them to five provinces in Asia Minor. And those provinces Provinces happen to be, you guessed it, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
Now, if you imagine being a person who was in one of those cities, and they would have been small, probably just a few thousand people, uh, where these Christians were immigrating, uh, they didn't oftentimes view them as new friends. In fact, whenever a forced migration would happen like that, word would get around that the government was moving troublemakers into our neighborhood. And so you can imagine how people who live there would feel about troublemakers being moved by the government into our neighborhood. They weren't exactly welcomed with open arms. In fact, they were foreigners and they were oftentimes viewed with a great deal of resentment, subject to ridicule and sometimes even violence uh, among the locals. All right, so... Put yourself now in the shoes of those Christians who had been forced to migrate from Rome to these far-reaching places in the emperor. Imagine what it would have been like to have lived all of your life in one place, but then forced by the government to move to a foreign city with people uh, among, among neighbors that resented you for being there. Okay? If you can imagine what it would be like to be in that situation, then you, would, then you can imagine what it would be like to read this letter from Peter the very first time, because those are the people that Peter was writing to. Now, one of the things that we find here is that Peter makes a brilliant connection at the very beginning of the letter. You see, the, the purpose of the letter was to encourage those Christians who had been relocated, but what's so brilliant about it is that he also use it as, uses it as an opportunity to build their identity, to build their community identity. And how did he do that? Well, all you have to do is look in verse one and look at two words and you will see exactly how he does it. Look at what he says. He says, Peter, he introduces himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exile scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Right? Those those provinces sound familiar? They should, I, I just talked about them, right? Now, here's how he builds their identity. He does it really with two words, exiles and elect. Okay? Now, the reason that he builds their identity with these is because there's a connection that they would have made uh, in building their identity. It, it, think back to the Old Testament. And if you think of the word elect from the Old Testament, what do you think of? Israel. Yeah, Abraham, Israel, you know, that that whole line there, okay? You think about that. They're chosen people, elect, right? When you think of the word exile, what do you think of? You think of, well, actually, Babylon, right? Israel, Uh, but same thing. You think Israel whenever you think about elect and whenever you think about exiles, okay? So let's talk about those two words because remember, this is, he's building their identity here, Okay? You see, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people. God's, you could say it, elect. And this election goes back to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to bless the rest of the world through him and through his descendants. Then fast forward to 1500. I know a lot happens in that 1500 years, but we're going to fast forward 1500 years to the time of Jesus. And what we see is is that Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of that promise that was made to, to Abraham. Now when Jesus ascended, he formed his church through the Holy Spirit, and along with the Jews, through faith in Christ, he formed this reconstituted, multi-ethnic, multinational people of God, including both Jews and Gentiles. And so we might ask, well, if, uh, if the Christians that Peter is writing to were Romans, that means they were Gentiles, and so what 
Peter is doing is, is he's trying to form their identity as the people of God. You once were Gentiles and excluded from the covenant, but now through Jesus, you are included in the people of God. Okay, and I've gone through this uh, theology before, that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, that the Gentiles are incorporated into the people of God. And that's exactly the point that Peter is making. He's writing to these Gentiles and he's saying, hey, you guys are part of the elect. Okay? The, Israel's history is your history. And so together with the Jews, they are chosen through faith in Jesus to be the people of God. And you'll see this all throughout the letter uh, of 1 Peter. For instance, we'll look a little bit later uh, in 1 Peter 2.9, where he uses this Old Testament language to describe them. And this is a lot of Old Testament language. He says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. And so he's saying, you're Israel. Don't forget, you are God's people together. All right? So elect. Exiles. What does, what does exiles mean? Well, here's, um, here's what it means. Next to the exodus out of Egypt... The exile to Babylon was probably the most significant historical event for the Jewish people. You see, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem along with the temple and carried a significant number of people into Babylon, including the, the most promising uh, people in there. That's where we get the story of Dan, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's part of the, the Babylonian exile. Okay, now, it's impossible to overstate how devastating the exile was for the Jewish people. Because when they lost Jerusalem, and especially when they lost the temple, the center of their worship, they lost their identity. They weren't sure whether the Jewish faith was going to continue. God, they thought that God had abandoned them, and they thought maybe their nation themselves would be dispersed and pretty much be no more. But the fact is, is that God had not abandoned them. And to communicate that to them, he sent prophets, like the prophet Jeremiah, for instance, to encourage them and to instruct them in how to live in their new situation, in their new circumstances. And scholars tell us that as Peter was writing the book of 1 Peter, he had in mind Jeremiah chapter 29. Okay, so let's go there just a minute. Jeremiah chapter 29. And this will give us a lot of insight into the Apostle Peter writing, in, uh, writing this letter to the Christians. And this is what it says, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jump down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now what he's talking about there is there were false prophets who were saying, oh, this exile isn't going to last long, so don't get comfortable. Just, you know, you're going to go back and it's not going to be, you know, you're going to go right back home, so don't worry about it, okay? And they were false prophets. And so then he continues on in verse 10. He says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So as we work through the, uh, the book of 1 Peter, keep this passage uh, in mind or keep it close by you uh, because there's a lot of similarities there and, and Peter is actually drawing on this passage uh, as, he, as he writes to the Christians. Now, you see how Peter is building the identity of the Christians uh, as elect and as exiles, all right? So that's a lot. That's just like the introduction. And uh, there's so much there to, to try to unpack, but hopefully you know, there's a lot of that that you did as you were studying the passage. Now, let's go on. Let's go on to verse 2. He writes this. They have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. All right. Now, there's this big debate in uh, Christian circles, has been for a long time, between Calvinists and Arminians about election. What does it mean to be elected? Well, what Peter is talking about here is not individual election. It's not election to salvation as individuals. Like God chooses some to be saved and some to be damned. Okay, That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the election of the people of God, of, of Israel. He chose to work through Israel to make a covenant with a particular man and a particular group of people so that that he could bring his blessing to the rest of the world. And so when he talks about election, that's what he's talking about. Right? And now what's the, what's the reason for his choosing? Okay, why did God choose these people? Well, it says here, well, first of all, it's not fully, it's partially, and we'll get to this a little bit later, uh, for salvation. But, but look at what he says here first in, in verse 2. He says, they were chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, they were chosen to be obedient to Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Okay, now, this sounds really weird, and I bet that as you were reading that, you were think, thinking, what in the world is Peter talking about here? All right. Well, this is another allusion to the Old Testament, another identity-building kind of theme. And so we go from for there, we go back to Exodus chapter 24. This is where God brings the people of Israel to, the, to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law, and he's forming this covenant with the people of God. Again, an identity-forming uh, ceremony that they're doing. And so we see in Exodus 24, uh, verses 7 and 8, here it is. Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will, what's the word? Obey, right? Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So he's making a direct allusion to what's happening here in the giving of the covenant law. 
And, uh, and, and some of those words should sound familiar because we say them at the first, the, the first Sunday of every month when we take communion, right? Because that's a sign of, of the new covenant. See, he's forming, it, forming their identity as God's people. All right? Let's go on. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, now this is one of those long passages that has so many elements to it that it's hard to to track with it. And so here's what we're going to do. And this is, as you study it, this is an important thing for you to do, is to take some words that you see in that passage and just define them and see how they connect together. Okay, so let's let's do this. So let's start here. And let's start with, uh, and by his mercy, or because of his mercy. Okay, now this is the reason why God did it. God gives mercy, not because we deserve it, but because mercy is God's character, okay? He does it not because of our greatness, but because of God's greatness. God sees the human predicament. He sees us stuck in our own sin or living with the consequences of other people's sin in our society. And rather than smiting them or saying, hey, you got yourself into this, you get yourself out, he had mercy on them. He had compassion on them. But what we know is, is that compassion without action is useless. And so what does God do? Moving on, Peter says, he has given us a new birth. Now, when you think about birth, what do you think about? You think about life, right? It's it's, it's new life. And in this case, he's talking about new life. It's another chance. It's another way of living. And it's it's not the same chance that they had before. It's, It's the fact that people are born into a new family with new influences with the Holy Spirit there. All right, now, uh, this is pretty significant, especially since he's writing to Gentiles, right, that they're born into a new family. They're not Abraham's descendants. They weren't part of the family of God. And so he's, it's significant that he tells them, you are now born into a new family. And you might ask, well, where does it talk about a new family? Well, in verse 4, he says this. He says they are born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Right Now, who gets an inheritance? Children, right? Descendants. They get an inheritance. That's family. Right? And, and when you see that, you see that there's a level of security here. Um, if God is the father who passes on an inheritance, what is the chance that at any point God is going to go bankrupt? Let me, let me, let me figure it out. Zero, <laughs> right? God's not going to go bankrupt. And so, man, that's an inheritance that is secure. You know, you're not worried about there being an economic downturn at some point because this is God that you're inheriting it from. And so there's a security there that you can have knowing that the God who owns the entire earth has an inheritance waiting for you as his child. And he says that this inheritance then gives them a living hope. All right, so let's talk about hope. What is hope? Because this is kind of a key uh, not just for this passage, but for all of First Peter. This is how Scott McKnight describes hope. He says, Hope is not an abstract sense of optimism, but a confident expectation of a good outcome based on the work of God. Right? Now, 
when you hope for something, you always hope that things are going to get better, right? Now, there might be a sense in which if life is going well for you, you can hope that things will continue to go well. But mostly what you hope for is, is that sometime in the future, my situation is going to improve. And what we find from whatever, psychology or sociology or just living life, is that hope is a powerful thing. Hope is a powerful thing in our lives. Hope is something that can sustain someone. Think about a, a, a prisoner of war who's in a POW camp for years. And, uh, and he's about ready to give up, but then he pulls out of his shirt pocket that picture of his family. He sees his, his wife and kids. And he looks at it, and, and just the thought of being able to see his wife and kids again at some point will give him the will to carry on, to be able to, to go through all kinds of suffering and to continue to, to live so that one day he can see them again. That's the power of hope. And we see it in a passage like this as just one word, but we have to understand just how powerful that word is. Hope sustains us. All right? And Peter says it's a living hope. It's realistic. It's alive. Okay? Because a dead hope, that's a, that's a hope that's gone. I used to hope for something, but now my hope is dead. But Peter says it's a living hope. It's not just wishful thinking. And Peter says, what is the source of this living hope? Why is this hope living? Well, it's the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Peter might be making a connection here between the living hope and the living Jesus. In other words, would they have a living hope if Jesus were still in the grave? Probably not. I mean, maybe you could. Maybe it could be like wishful thinking or something like that. But ultimately, their hope is, is living because they know that they have a living Lord. The resurrection is proof of our future resurrection. Okay, then look at the end of verse 5. He says, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And here's where we find out that that inheritance is salvation, the ultimate salvation of our souls. Now, part of that is uh, being saved from our current suffering in life. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that our suffering is going to go away. Mostly, Peter is referring to what happens when Christ comes again and we enter into eternity. Mostly, he's referring to uh, freedom from the oppression of sin, from the power of darkness, and, the salva- and salvation from judgment, all of those things. And, of course, there are some benefits to that right now. It can be purpose in this life. Uh, it can be peace with God. All All of those things can happen right now, but ultimately it will be paid out in the future. It's a promise now that we get hints of now, but ultimately will be fulfilled in the future salvation. Okay, and so in this section, Peter is praising God and reminding the believers that whatever happens here in this life, the promise of a future resurrection should give them a living hope that will sustain them in this life no matter what happens. In other words, their confidence in their future inheritance should change how they live in the present. All right, let's go on. Verse 6. He's talking about uh, future salvation. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor 
when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now here we get to the meat of why Peter is writing this letter. He's writing it because they need encouragement. He's writing it because they are undergoing suffering, specifically suffering because of their faith. And so one of the things that we have to avoid in 1 Peter is whenever he talks about suffering, he's not talking about broken arms. All right? He's not talking about um, just the, the regular suffering that, happen, that happens in life. He's talking about suffering for our faith, suffering for Christ. Okay? And so the, the people that he's writing to are actually suffering for their faith. They've been displaced from Rome because of their faith. Now uh, they're not welcomed in their new city. And part of that is because they were moved, but part of that is also because of their new faith. It's impossible for them to find hope in their circumstances. Okay? There's just not any reason. I mean, they might hope that someday their new city will embrace them, but they don't have any reason to believe that it's true. And so Peter reminds them that they have a greater hope, and that is eternity with God. Okay, but notice this phrase. Here's what Peter says will be the result. The genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay, now there's one thing about this phrase that's unclear. It's who is giving the praise and who is getting the praise. Okay, is it God praising you know, the believer, or is it the believer praising God in the end? Actually, the, the language of it is very unclear. Um, so we could think about it as, you know, getting to, uh, getting to see God and him saying, well done, good and faithful servant, or it could be us seeing God and falling to our knees and giving him praise. And the truth of the matter is, is it could be both, and it's probably both, right? You don't really have to choose. Like, who, uh, who praises who when a team wins the Super Bowl? Do the uh, players praise the coach, or does the coach praise the players? Well, all of the above, everyone. It's, it's like a big party. That's what it is, right? And this is what Peter is describing here. Man, when we get to see the end result of our faith, it's going to be a big party, and we're going to be praising God, and he's going to be praying us, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think that's what Peter has in mind. Not a football game, necessarily, uh, but a big celebration. Praises all around, going back and forth, all right? Let's go, let's go on to verse 8, because I think this even uh, enhances it a little bit. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are, are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Isn't that an amazing picture there? That you are filled right now. And now... There's going to be an amazing and inexpressible joy when we get there, when we finally see the end result. But Peter is saying, no, even right now, even in the middle of your suffering, that you have this inexpressible and glorious joy because you are so confident in what is to come. Isn't that an amazing picture there? That you're, you're feeling what you will feel then, only you're feeling it right now, even with all of the stuff going on around you. All right, now... There are three uh, words or three verses left here, and I'm not going to go in depth into them, all right? Uh, but I do want to get to, because uh, I want to get to the application, because I think that's really important. But there is one note that I want to, uh, I make here. There are going to be times when you're studying the Bible, and, and that's true in 1 Peter. There are some times in 1 Peter that there are some confusing passages, and you're going to go, what in the world is he talking about? Like obedience and being sprinkled with blood. What in the world is that about? Now, sometimes there's an easy answer to that, like going back to Exodus chapter 24. But some of them are just going to be unclear. 
And oftentimes, Christians see these passages as a challenge to conquer, and we end up spending an inordinate amount of time on them. In fact, sometimes they become the focus of our study. And, uh, and they give way to debates, and pretty soon you think that's what that passage is all about. And I'm not saying that we should quit on a passage just because there's some difficult things in there. Okay? There's, there's value to working through it and trying to figure out what it's saying. But I also think that sometimes taking up the challenge of a really mysterious passage causes us oftentimes to miss what's right in front of our eyes. See, there are, there are some passages in there that are as clear as can be, and we can't allow the confusing passages to turn our attention away from those things that are clear and to do exactly what it's saying. And so I think we should focus most of our attention on verses that are clear and, uh, and spend time doing that rather than being preoccupied with confusing passages. Now, uh, with all that said... Uh, uh, verses 10 through 12 can seem kind of confusing on the, uh, on the surface, but actually they're not really that challenging until you get to that very last part, even angels long to look into uh, what, uh, what, what you know. Uh, but basically what it's saying is this. Peter is saying that we should realize that we are in a privileged position as believers. And it was, man, was it Dwayne? I think Dwayne, in your prayer, you, you said this, right? You said that, that um, man, all of the stuff that Abraham and Moses and like the prophets were prophesying about, they didn't know the end result of it. They didn't know how things were going to turn out. And so Isaiah was prophesying about this Messiah having no idea how everything was going to work out. I don't think he had a vision of the cross of Christ. I think God just told him what he needed to know to give people the information that they needed. And so what Peter is saying is, is that you guys now on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, you guys are privileged because you know something that even Isaiah himself did not know. You know something that even Abraham himself did not know. You have seen the resurrection and you have seen what God has been working for all of these thousands of years. And so you, are in a, you have an incredible advantage in life. Which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. That we know things that Abraham and Moses and King David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of those guys didn't know. All right, let's go to application. Now, application is always about asking some questions. Questions like, all right, what should I know? But, but especially it's the question, what should I do? How should what I know change how I live now in this life? And this is where you get to the point where you go, well, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong answer. I mean, maybe there are some answers that are wrong, but, but, but I don't know that there's any like definitive right answer. Um, because there are things that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind for you that he doesn't bring to mind for me. And we live in different situations and are dealing with different circumstances. And so there might be a, a peculiar uh, application that you get from the passage that I might not get. But with that in mind, I'm going to do some application here. And I want to do it just by following Peter's line of thought here. Um, of, of reminding the church of who they were and... Uh, and I believe that when he does that, that he also wants to remind us of who we are. See, there are many similarities between the early Christians and Christians today. Okay? We are a community of people with exclusive beliefs. And we are living in a society that tells us that no one should claim to have true truth. No one should claim that their understanding 
of the world is true. But of course, that's nonsense, right? You know that, don't you? Because any claim to truth is an exclusive claim. And, uh, and, and so everyone believes that their worldview is true, no matter how pluralistic they think they are. They believe that, that their worldview is true. If, if, if we didn't believe that, we would go crazy. Like, we would literally go uh, insane. And, uh, and so we all believe that our beliefs are true. It's what do we do with them in the meantime. And so Peter recognizes how critical it is for us to build our Christian identity as the people of God. Now, in this modern individualistic worldview, uh, sometimes it's really difficult to, to think this way, to think as a community of people, people. But scripture tells us that we are saved not just as individuals, but we are saved into a community, into a family of people who have a special status as the people of God. Okay? Now, I know on the surface that sounds really audacious, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine Someone, you know, me going and claiming, well, I'm part of the people of God, you know, it sounds, sounds pretty arrogant. And, uh, you know, like Christians, are, we're thumbing our noses at everybody else. We're the people of God and you're not, right? But it, and, and it sounds that way, at least until you understand what it actually means, okay? Here's what I mean. First, you have to understand that we don't claim that we're the people of God because we're better than everyone else. In fact, we're not chosen because of our greatness, but because of God's grace. And here's the great thing, is that God invites everyone to be a part of his family. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And so the invitation to be a part of the people of God is open to everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, where you're from, any of that. That invitation is open to you. And so anyone can be a part of the people of God if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you are given a hope and a purpose in life, okay? But also recognize this. It's that being God's people is not just a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. And this is the thing that that oftentimes we forget, is that we have been given the task that was given to Abraham and to Israel and to Jesus, or actually through Jesus himself, of, of proclaiming to the world that Jesus is Lord through our actions and through our words. When you're saved, that becomes your calling. That becomes a part of your calling. And it's not an add-on for advanced believers. When you're saved into the community of God's people, you are saved into that mission. It's part of the package. Third, is that Christians are called to be a community, but what should bind us together should be our common identity in Christ rather than what we are against. Now, one of the things that we know about human nature and about forming communities, is that it's really easy to form a tightly knit community by defining ourselves by a common enemy. And you see that all over the place in our society today. Okay? You can have a lot of things, like not have a lot of things in common, but if you have a common enemy, that will create a tight bond. The church is not that kind of community. I'm just going to tell you, and we have to resist that. We have to resist that temptation because we are formed not by what we are against, but by who we are for, who we are centered on. And we have to understand that then our mission then is not to, is not to shame the world or decry the world, but to give ourselves for the sake of the world, right? We are the body of Christ. And what did Jesus do? He gave himself for the sake of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. And that is also then the mission of the church. And so we have to, we, we must resist defining ourselves by what we're against and define ourselves instead by being the people of Christ and living his way. All right, so when you know those things, then you understand that being the people of God doesn't sound quite so presumptuous, right? All right, the second thing I want you to reflect on is this, is that our calling means that we will or may have to endure suffering. And this is one of the themes that we'll be reflecting on all throughout the series, what it means to be exiles, because there are a lot of people who have, who have pointed out that there are some similarities between the early church Uh, their situation and and our situation. Now, most of us in here have not been forcefully transplanted to another city. Anybody been forced by the government to live in Minneapolis? No? Actually, military people. I guess they're the only ones that really are forced by the government to live in different places, right? But if you're not a part of the military, chances are you're living here because you want to or for some reason like that, because you forget about how terrible the winters are. Um, But I'm guessing that if you have been a Christian for any length of time, then you are probably seeing more and more a divergence between the ways of the world and the way as Christians we are called to live. See, the fact is that Christians throughout history have always had a complicated relationship with the society around them. And this is true whether it's ancient people in Asia Minor or ancient Greece or Africa or South America or modern-day U.S. And there is a reason for this. And that is that we live in a world that is subject to powers that are not of God. All right? Uh, But a word of caution. Because even as we talk about that... We have to resist the temptation to denounce society or today's culture as if it were just one thing and it were all terrible, right? See, the truth is, is that there are redeeming elements of our society. There are redeeming elements of our culture. The Apostle Paul says in in Colossians 1.16, now listen to this very carefully, and maybe you've never thought of it this way, but this is what he says. He says, for in Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Right? Do you see what he's saying there? What he's saying is, is that when Paul talks about thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, visible and invisible, he's actually talking about human systems. He's talking about organizations and governments and economic systems and trades and music and culture and all of those things. And Paul says that all of those have been created by Christ for Christ. So the purpose of them being there actually is good. That's the, that's the ultimate purpose. And so as citizens of this society, just as the exiles in Babylon or in Asia Minor, we need to be willing to affirm those things that are good in our society and be willing to work with our neighbors for the common good. That's a great point of connection that we can make with them. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we see good things in our culture and society. But we should also not be surprised when we see evil in the world. And that's because sin is present. And so we see sinful ideologies, sinful systems, sinful structures, and sinful people all around us. And so we have to be discerning about what we can accept and about what we can't. We have to recognize that, and we have to be okay with the fact that we're not going to completely feel at home 
in any society. That there are going to be things that the Bible critiques and there are going to be things that the Bible affirms. And so as believers, we have to be discerning to know the difference between those things. And there may come a time when we are persecuted or ridiculed for what we believe. But actually, you know something? That's not all that uncommon when it comes to being a Christian. It's uncommon here in the United States, but it hasn't been throughout history. Okay, and here's where I want to land. Uh, because for me, I think this is the most powerful aspect of the passage. It's because it's that as followers of Jesus, as the people of God, that we should remember that we live in light of the resurrection. We live in light of the resurrection. You see, we live in a world where sometimes as a believer we feel like exiles, that we're living in a world that is not our home. And in fact, if you feel completely uh, comfortable um, in any society, actually, as a believer, then there are probably some things that you need to rethink. All right? And I don't, I don't want to overplay this too much, this idea of us being exiles, because we're not really persecuted in this society. And I think to say that we're persecuted is actually pretty uh, ignorant and insensitive to Christians around the world who are actually going through real persecution right now, who take their own life into their hands just by attending worship service. All right, So I don't want to play that up too much. But there is a sense in, in this culture where oftentimes we feel embattled and we feel uh, embittered or discouraged. Uh, and we have a tendency sometimes to take on a victim mentality. And when we do that, that's when we start to set ourselves up against society. To set ourselves up against culture. Okay? And, and part of that is, is that we were, we've been marinating. We grew up in a culture that believes that suffering is uncommon. That it's foreign. And that comfort is the norm in human existence. The truth of the matter is, is it's only been recently where, that we, where anyone has been able to hold on to that illusion. And so we think that our faith should result in comfort. And oftentimes our faith is, is uh, focused on avoiding suffering and, and uh, securing comfort for ourselves. But Peter says this, and this is consistent all through scripture, that we are not to avoid suffering, but we are to embrace it and to endure it. We are responsible to be the faithful presence of Christ to the people in our path. And we should live out that responsibility. And this is key. We should live out that responsibility with joy. With incredible and unalterable joy. In fact, I would say that even in suffering, Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the face of the earth. Why is that? Well, it's because God has given us the resources to do it through the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that this life is not all there is. And it's certainly not the best thing that God has for us. The resurrection is not some obscure doctrine that we pull out every Easter and we talk about then, but it's actually the event that informs every bit of our faith. Living in light of the resurrection is living confidently that we have an inheritance waiting for us in the next life. And because we do, then we don't have to get everything that we can out of this life. Living in light of the resurrection means living in the confidence that whatever happens, in the end, we are going to be okay. Because we have a father who cares about us and who knows what's going on 
in this life. We don't have to try to preserve our life, our money, our popularity, or our comfort. We don't have to avoid suffering because we know that we have an inheritance waiting for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that confidence then gives us the ability to be a living testimony of hope in a chaotic world around us. We're not the only ones who feel it. Everybody sees it, how chaotic life is today. And what the world needs right now is people who exude hope. People who don't give in to the cynicism of our day. Because we are people of the resurrection. What an amazing privilege, but also an incredible responsibility. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the living hope that you have given us. We thank you for the salvation that we have waiting for us um, in eternity. We thank you that someday it will be fulfilled and someday we will see the, the end result of our faith. But I pray, God, that, that that confidence would not make us complacent in this world, that we would not neglect the responsibility that you have given us as your people to be witnesses to that hope that people can have through Jesus Christ. Pray that you would help us to be able to endure suffering, to be able to, to be willing to, uh, to be public with our faith, to be able to live consistently with the way that you have called us to live no matter what happens, no matter what our reputation is, no matter if we're ridiculed, no matter what happens in life, God. Would you give us the strength as we live in light of the resurrection? May that inform everything that we do as believers. Help us to remember that we have a family, the people of God, to offer encouragement and support and teaching and correction and that that can strengthen us for whatever happens in this life. Lord, we thank you for scripture and we thank you for what, uh, what First Peter or what Peter wrote in this letter that he wrote to the Christians. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding and insight, wisdom and courage to live it out in our lives as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.